Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you in part by Vancouver Manuscript Intensive, a literary mentoring program that pairs emerging and established authors with mentors in their genre. Directed by award-winning writers Ellie Kralji Gardner and Rachel Rose in Vancouver, B.C., the program is open to writers around the world who seek sustained mentorship for their work in progress. Writers can join the six-month program that includes interaction with other mentors and students and participation in a public reading, or they can pursue solo guidance for more directed and short-term support all year long. This year also inaugurates the VMI Fellowship for a writer of exceptional promise with a manuscript in progress who has faced significant barriers to fulfilling that promise including but not limited to racism, poverty or class barriers, geographic dislocation or refugee status, single parenthood, disability, or serious illness. The application deadline for the six-month program, beginning January 2021, is November 9th. Please visit vancouvermanuscriptintensive.com for more information about pairing with a mentor to hone your project. And while we are talking about honing your project, I'll also mention some Tin House specific news. The Tin House workshop is now taking applications for their virtual craft intensive classes. These intensives combine close readings, discussions, and in-class writing prompts as a dose of inspiration for you and your manuscripts. Led by authors from the Tin House Residency Program, these one-day classes cost $75 with no application fees and with scholarships available. The deadline to apply is September 27th. Learn about these classes on everything from nonconformity as form to linguistic activism to navigating silence at tinhouse.com slash craft dash intensives. So again, two opportunities to hone your work, the six-month program and or solo guidance with a mentor at vancouvermanuscriptintensive.com and a wide variety of one-day craft-intensive classes at tinhouse.com slash craft-intensives. I'm excited to present the second Tin House Live episode that is an unmoderated conversation between two writers at the top of their craft. I've been brainstorming with supporters of the show who would be there and my dream guests going forward. And one person said they were hoping for future conversations where two writers who don't know each other or don't know each other well are paired so that we can experience the ways they encounter and discover each other in real time. I too find this to be an incredible joy and pleasure to experience this as a listener, and it is also something I aspire towards as a host. I'm often meeting a guest on the show for the first time myself and trying to bump them out of the autopilot of a long book tour or away from their prepared, oft-repeated comments about their own work to sort of try to meet them in a different space, a dynamic space of discovery in the moment. That's the hope. But I also think there is a, a type of conversation that can only happen with two people who are very close. 
two people bonded by regard and love, by a deeply established and nurtured rapport between them. That is one of the incredible aspects of today's conversation between dream guests, Brandon Taylor and Garth Greenwell, called Queer Beatitudes. This conversation goes places it could only go because of the places they have gone together already, emotionally and intellectually, in their ongoing day-to-day conversations, the public side of which is one of the top reasons, if not the top reason, to be on Twitter, a conversation that is often challenging, provocative, mind-expanding, heart-opening, and often hilariously entertaining, but always full of a mutual generosity of spirit. If you listened to the first Tin House Live conversation a couple weeks ago between Basi Ikbi and Melissa Phoebos, you heard me talk about both love and generosity, how I was learning to be the target of love and generosity, something that was both wonderful and wonderfully hard to do. We are now about three weeks into my fall fundraising campaign to aim to get between the covers on solid footing going forward as my primary occupation after COVID threw a boomerang into my long-term job situation. And already, after only three weeks, I'm already over two-thirds of the way to my end-of-the-year goal a goal that now seems doable because you have shared what the show means to you with your friends and followers. And when you've been able to, you've stepped forward to show you value this endeavor by becoming a patron. The entry level to join a dynamic listener-supporter between the covers community, one where you get resource-filled emails with each episode, can participate in brainstorms about how the show could and should look going forward and who to invite is only $1 an episode or $24 a year. But that is only the beginning of what is available. Copies of Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing, the seasonal Tin House new release, which just now is switching to Bright and Dangerous Objects, not to mention the bonus audio for supporters. Everything from Richard Powers talking about and reading W.S. Merwin to a craft talk on narrative seduction by Marlon James to today's guest, Garth Greenwell, reading Frank Bedart's Overheard Through the Walls of the Invisible City. To find out about all of this, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers or If it is more your style to give a one-time contribution, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has reached out and raised me up during a time of precarity for so many people. And now, without further ado, here is Queer Beatitudes with Brandon Taylor and Garth Greenwell. Hello, everyone. I'm so thrilled to be here. Uh, Tin House, um, my time there was such an important, pivotal moment in my writing life and my career. I, I sort of blew up my life as a scientist to become a writer. And 
embarked on a summer of writing conferences as I was leaving Madison and coming down here to Iowa City. And one of the first places I landed was Ten House. And there I met so many wonderful people who are still my friends to this day. It's where I met my literary agent who would, you know, later help me craft my stories and send them out into the world. And, and it's one of the first places I learned how to be like a part of a real literary community and, and to be in citizenship and community with other people. So yeah, it's just like such a beautiful, wonderful place. I've been weepy and workshop all week telling my students like, these are the times you'll remember. <laughs> um, yeah, so when Lance asked me if I, if I wanted to do a craft talk or be in conversation, I immediately thought, well, I, I wanna be in conversation. Um, craft, I don't know anything about that, but I know how to talk. Um, and he immediately suggested Garth for my conversation partner and I thought, Absolutely. There's no one I would rather talk to about these things than Garth Greenwell, um, who I, I first encountered on the page and as a writer and who I, I feel lucky enough to call my friend now. Um, we spend many hours arguing and chatting about books in, in, here in Iowa City and online and you know, his friendship is one of the great treasures of my life. Um, so, the, you know, the, the title of this talk is Queer Beatitudes, Riffing on Queer Aesthetics. And so I thought I might begin with some opening remarks about how I think of the idea of a queer beatitude and, and what is it? There was a time in my life when my primary understanding of what it meant to be queer came from people who were not queer and worse, who are hostile or ambivalent to queerness itself. Like many people who find themselves among those not like them, I was furnished with meager tools with which to make sense of myself. And so those early painful years of my becoming myself were hazy and dark. To come of age under the watchful gaze of an overculture is to find oneself ignorant of those primary virtues that make your life worth living or if not ignorant, at least suspicious of that which might bring you joy or pleasure. What to do when your saints have been robbed of their faces and your holy rites and sacraments have been abolished, when the very fact of your being has been ruled obscene, what to do in the face of such ridiculous orthodoxy? I imagine that the answer is to do what we have always done, improvise. The queer beatitude is the work of a moment. You know it when you see it or hear it. It is the name I give to those expressions of queerness, which are not academic or theoretical in nature, but which come out of the easy mess of everyday life. Sometimes Garth puts his face in his hands and moans and says something like, life is such misery, why must I suffer so? And I say immediately, that's a queer beatitude. Not that queerness is suffering or only suffering, but that queerness is contained in the mode of the expression of the suffering, the peculiar hyperbolic but utterly sincere construction of life is such misery, why must I suffer? Recently, a friend called me to talk about his master's thesis. And over the course of the call, he told me that he had decided to take a leap and have a threesome with a guy he was kind of seeing and that guy's boyfriend and at the end of the call, which had gone on for hours and had, and had absorbed all of the ready material of our lives, he said goodbye, and I said, G 
Good luck with your threesome. Be safe. Wash your hands. Don't fall in love. And he said, Queen, I'll do my best. The extremity of it, the silly randomness of it all, the sheer volume and texture of the exchange, the fluid, easy range with which we moved from academia to sex, to TV, to life, to love, to wishing each other well, to accepting that a threesome was simply another part of a Tuesday afternoon. This is a queer beatitude. Those moments in our lives, those constructions of thought or expression or feeling, which are a direct result of and which seem entirely predicated on our queerness, those are our beatitudes. The states of utter bliss or blessedness, the moments when we are most ourselves, or those moments of pain or agony that are legible only to those who know. How else to explain the moment days later when my friend explained that the threesome had not gone well and I didn't even need him to say that he hadn't heeded my warning about not falling in love or letting his feelings get too intense because I knew already what had happened. The moment of falling in love with one party and a threesome with a married couple, that is a queer beatitude. The moment in which my friend goes over the options for how he can get his nails done now that he is looking for a job and he knows the cis conservatives of Alabama's middle management class will see his femme presenting tall fat self and purse their lips. That too is a queer beatitude. The fact of his having to face it and the fact of his not needing to explain it or why it is wrong. I don't know exactly why I started using the phrase, only that it made sense the moment I said it. There was the feel of something holy, something big, something silly, something campy, something bright, something true, something utterly ours. It sounded like the sort of thing dreamed by people much smarter than me with better organizational skills and brain chemistry. It was an infinitely motile filament that I could thread through and around anything. But I guess, simply, a queer beatitude is whatever we say it is. Queerness is capacious, multifarious, ever-evolving, situation and subject, affect and expression. This is one of our great virtues. Brandon, you have such a beautiful mind. <laughs> Thank you, Garth. Yeah, so I thought we might just now start riffing on the idea of a queer beatitude because it's something that we, well, it's often you say something incredibly beautiful and profound about how we live in the world. And I say, that's a queer beatitude. So I often feel like I'm, I'm just like stamping anything you say for my own purposes. Oh, that's so funny that you say that because, you know, I mean, I have just shamelessly and ruthlessly appropriated your idea of a queer beatitude, which has entered my own sort of critical discourse and way of making sense of art and the world. Um, and sometimes I credit you, like in formal occasions, if I'm working from notes, I credit you, but sometimes I just appropriate it and pretend that it's my own brilliant idea. But so, I mean, I don't have prepared remarks or anything as beautiful or as eloquent as what Brandon said to share. But, you know, when I think about sort of how I've appropriated this idea of queer beatitudes and how sort of in the what, I mean, three, four years now of our friendship, sort of the idea has accompanied our many conversations and thoughts. Um, I mean, I also like um, apostate that I am, go back to the gospels and think about Jesus's beatitudes. And, you know, I mean, the fact that at the heart of 
um, the Sermon on the Mount is transvaluation. You know, these are counterfactual statements where Jesus says, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry. Um, you know, these, this sort of taking a group of people or an experience that is generally disparaged or seen only in negative terms and asserting instead that it is a condition of being beatus. It's a condition of being blessed or of being happy or of being fortunate. And that, you know, that transvaluation seems to me really at the heart of queerness and of queer survival. Um, I mean, something that you've heard me say many times and um, anyone who was at Ten House last year heard me say is that, you know, I do think um, queer people are geniuses of transformation and that the whole history of queer art is taking stigma and turning it into style and the history of queer politics is taking stigma and turning it into solidarity. Um, the history of queer desire is taking stigma and turning it into pleasure. Um, you know, and so that capacity to, as you say, sort of take um, an experience that one might see as stymieing or sheerly negative and instead transvalue it and turn it into something that we can use. That seems kind of at the core of queer beatitudes to me. Also just the very fact of counterfactuality, you know, I mean, the fact that Jesus is saying things that are obviously not true, you know, he's just sort of pointing to reality and saying the opposite is true. Like that act of assertion feels really important to me. And it also feels just at the root of art making. Like the reason we need art is because we need the realm of the counterfactual, you know? I mean, we need to put a frame around a piece of reality and manipulate it, alter it, um, imagine something entirely new. And then it also seems important to me and sort of true to queer aesthetics, um, the way that Jesus points to the future, you know? Um, I mean, he says, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they will be filled, you know? Um, and that seems to me also something that's true of queerness, that queerness is always um, pointing elsewhere. You know, queerness is often pointing to the future, sort of queerness is something we dream of arriving at someday. It's not a state that we inhabit. We are always imperfectly queer, dreaming of a more perfect queerness. But then we also point to the past, you know, something that seems true to me of queer art is that um, queerness, you know, queer art often looks to the past for resources that help us imagine a future. Um, and so, and then, you know, just the very fact, and this is something that I still find really useful in Christianity, even though <laughs> uh, Christianity is totally evacuated of truth value for me in, in any kind of metaphysical or theological sense, but just the assertion of a separate and sovereign system of values, you know, that Jesus says, you know, here are groups of people who are valued one way by the world. And I am asserting in the kingdom of heaven, a different system of values. And that too, finally seems to me what art is for, that art too insists on a separate and sovereign system of values. And, you know, something among the many incredibly beautiful things you said, um, where 
you know, you talked about um, queer beatitudes as pointing us towards values that might make life worth living. And I mean, to me, that is what art is for. Like there is so much in me and there is so much in the world, which seems increasingly dark and to have an ever narrowing horizon of futurity. Like there is so much that inclines me to say no to life. Mm. And something that I very desperately need from art is a reason to say yes to life. And that, you know, that reason is never in, or yeah, maybe I'll say never, certainly seldom in sort of what art says, but instead lies in how art is. And it lies in splendor, you know, this quality in art that I think is also a quality of queerness, this too muchness, you know, a kind of beauty that is utterly regardless of utility, a kind of gratuity of beauty, um, that that splendor makes me want to say yes to life. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that to me is, again, kind of what art is for. That's a queer beatitude. You know, <laughs> this idea of, um, you know, we, you and I, we often, often in our conversations, I'll, I'll sort of make a very, a very strict statement about the way things are. I'll, I'll say something like, well, Garth, you can't do that in, in literature. That's not real literature. And, and I always find that you make these, you always make the case for like, well, Brandon, that, that's a statement that has nothing to do with art. That ha that's a statement that has everything to do with real rules and nothing to do with art at all. And I'll be like, well, yes, you're right, I guess. You know, I, I always find that when we get into these conversations about queerness, you're always showing me the little pockets that exist outside of the, the sort of the regimes I've built in order to survive my life in some ways, you know, I feel like in order to survive the, the currents and the buffeting of the world, I've, I've sort of relied again and again on stricture, you know, on sort of creating a smaller and smaller um, set of circumstances into which I can fit myself and be safe and, and secure. Like I've always felt secure through reduction and through subtraction. And it's really only since, you know, like getting, out of that mindset and like talking to you and, and talking to other queer artists and reading more queer art that challenges my own sensibilities time and again that I've come to sort of understand more about life in the world like it seems a bit silly to say but my own understanding of what the world is is broadened through this sort of gratuity of beauty and through this gratuity the sort of excess the too muchness of it all um and I'm still sort of learning and, and thinking through all of this stuff. But, you know, time and again, you challenge me, you know, I'll say, well, that book is a mess. It has all of these voices and it's doing all of this extra stuff. And you'll be like, but isn't it great? <laughs> you know, <laughs> But isn't it beautiful? Like what, like you and your, your rules, Brandon, you don't need all of that. Um, and there does seem to me to be something inherent in queerness that, that always looks beyond whatever limited understanding we have of it into something broader and more beautiful and sort of ever evolving on the horizon. Like there is something in queerness that, that I always feel, it's like my, I consider it my little escape hatch, you know, <laughs> the sort of 
<laughs> these little escape hatches we have out of whatever limited understanding we have of the world into something grander and and more beautiful but and often those escape hatches come because of things you've said to me or 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 things that you've shown me um you know um things like opera for example was never a thing that i thought that i could really lay a claim to or sort of let into my life but but knowing you like I've come to love opera in a way that I never thought I I could or would or, or I've come to understand it in a way that I never thought I could or would and so futurity certainly something that seems inherent to sort of these queer forms yeah, well, I mean, Brandon, what you're describing to me just sounds like friendship, you know? <laughs> um, like, that's, you know, that's sort of the exhilaration of friendship and the exhilaration of love, you know? That that sense that someone is is giving you a broader sense of the world. I mean, that to me is um, what's so exhilarating about our conversations where you explain to me things like how electricity works, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things. So, I mean, it's certainly something that goes both ways. Um, you know, one of the things that's difficult, like when I when I give a lecture that I often give on queer aesthetics, um, you know, or this, you know, I, I, you know, I taught at Iowa this past semester a seminar on queer aesthetics, and I mean, one of the real difficulties of that is that I think, you know, the single defining feature of queerness I feel sure of is that queerness is allergic to definition. You know, I mean, definition is just literally drawing a line around something, you know, making it finite. Yeah. And queerness is all about leaping across borders and sort of refusing the rules and finding those escape hatches. And that's something that to me is really exciting about queer art. And it's something, it's a gift that I think queer art can bestow on the culture more broadly, you know? So, I mean, one of the things about queerness and one of the reasons that like queer is a term that is important to me, you know? It's not that I don't identify as a gay person or as a gay man, I do. But, you know, queer has a kind of adversarial relationship to the broader culture that feels important to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true of, of, you know, art that feels excitingly queer to me, that there is a way in which, again, it's sort of asserting an independent and often a kind of adversarial system of values. Well, the thing about, you know, our sort of capitalist culture is that it is extraordinarily good at absorbing the adversarial and commodifying it, yes. you know? So, you know, something that's true of queer art is that, you know, you have the Vogue scene, which is this countercultural, you know, radically other space that's in radical sort of distinction to a mainstream culture until Madonna puts it in a music video, you know, until all of a sudden there are, you know, these series, you know, there's Pose, there's et cetera, you know, and there's a way in which one of the reasons queerness, this allergy to definitions is so um, life-saving for queerness is that, you know, queerness is constantly shifting to resist appropriation. You know, queerness is sh constantly shifting to sort of find new ways to articulate an adversarial position, which is also, I think, you know, because like, so there are lots of things about queerness that our culture loves. Like our culture, it seems to me now, and again, like I'm making statements that of course are only ever true 
for certain pockets, certain demographics, certain ge geographies, not for the entirety of the United States and certainly not for the entirety of the world. But I do think there is a good chunk of American culture that is really comfortable with the idea of two men raising a child. But that same sort of chunk of America is still utterly repulsed by the queer sexual body. It's mm -hmm. utterly repulsed by the, the idea of those two men fucking. And so there's a way in which, you know, this is a, another gift that when I look at queer literature, I mean, I think this is a real gift that queer literature can offer, you know, literature more broadly is a kind of commitment to the sexual body precisely as that which is most resistant to appropriation and most resistant to commodification. Um, and that sort of, again, it's a kind of transvaluation to sort of say, you know, what is it that the mainstream culture rejects? What is it that the mainstream culture is frightened of or finds disgusting or finds repellent? Let's go there. Let's investigate that. Let's find out, you know, what values are being occluded by this mainstream culture. Like that to me is just an extraordinary gift to humankind on the part of queer art. Yeah, I mean, to me, you said so many brilliant things. I have so many thoughts about them. One thing is, it seems to me that one of the, the features, not bugs of queerness, is is the capacity to be ambivalent toward the overcultural imagination. You know, like in some ways the overculture needs us, but we don't need it. Like we like we're free to take it or leave it. There is a there is a freedom there. And I do feel it when I'm making art. You know, I, there are moments in my work where I'm like, oh, I could do what is expected but also I don't need to because that's not my baggage. Like I don't need cis heteropatriarchy actually. Like I don't need it as a framework. So I'm just going to elect to go do what I want to do, the actual sort of sites of inquiry and curiosity and an interest to me. And so there is something that feels really empowering to me as like an artist and as like a person is my ability to sort of, in some ways, to some degree, opt out of what the overculture wants of me. You know, I mean, we we really can't ever fully opt out, especially as like a queer black person. Like there's just, there are ways in which I can't disentangle, but, but I am, I do feel free to sort of disregard certain of its wants and demands. Um, and that feels really powerful to me. Another thing that you, that as you were talking, it, it made me realize that there, that I feel really, um, overwhelmed and emotional when I see commercials about gay people with families and like being emotional. And I'm always like, oh my gosh, like queer sentiment, like out in the open, it's so good. But then I realize that my sentiment is like an attack pathway of the overculture <laughs> trying to get its way inside. And that the very fact that the overculture has so decoded that part of queerness that it can create an algorithm that will target me <laughs> at the place where I feel most vulnerable is actually something that we should perhaps be slightly more worried about <laughs> because it knows where we live now. Like it knows, <laughs> like the overculture knows where we live and the fact that the capitalist machinery, like capitalism for you and capitalism for me and capitalism for everyone is actually not a utopia and yet I feel in some ways like we're being primed to think it is. Am I, am I 
am I like not, am I just, you've just short circuited my, my ability to exist within the capitalist machine guard. Well, no, I mean, you know, this is why I think ambivalence is so important and ambivalence is maybe the prime queer beatitude, you know, I mean, because in capitalism, being commodified is being loved. You know, I mean, this is how a sort of majority culture loves, you know? And so, yeah, when I watch that Gillette ad or whatever, where, you know, the father is teaching his trans son how to, how to shave. I mean, I just lose it. You know, I just, my whole, like, it's just copious tears. And absolutely that's genuine and true and sincere and also utterly bankrupt, you know? And so there's a way in which, I mean, that is precisely the usefulness of camp, you know? Because like camp is the ability to inhabit all of these affects at once, you know? So, I mean, when I try to think about camp, like camp is a famously difficult thing to think about. And to me, Susan Sontag's essay does not help at all. Like it is just utterly useless trying to think about camp. The very great essay about camp is by, I think, is by Andrew Holleran. And it's about the extraordinary downtown theater artist, Charles Ludlam, who had the theater of the ridiculous and um, who died of AIDS in the, what, 1987? I went sometime around there. But um, Holleran talks about going to the theater of the ridiculous during the AIDS crisis, you know, as he was watching the community he loved be decimated, as his friends were dying. And sort of this radical camp art that was absurd and made you, you know, hysterical with laughter and then also suddenly unveiled the abyss at your feet. And you didn't know what you were feeling. And Holleran, who, you know, very famously said, even after things like Angels in America were being made in response to the AIDS crisis, he said, art about AIDS, who cares? He says, it doesn't help. It's utterly irrelevant. He says, the only thing I want to read in the age of AIDS is the headline cure found, you know? So he said, the only aesthetic response to AIDS that felt adequate to him was Charles Ludlum's like brilliant anarchic camp. And I think it's precisely because it doesn't allow a kind of monolithic feeling to congeal. Like I am always suspicious anytime I think any cultural product makes, wants me to feel a single thing. Mm. Like if it wants me to feel a single thing, it's propaganda. And, you know, watching that Gillette ad, I feel overwhelmingly a single thing. And that's one sign that I'm being played, that my moral commitments are being instrumentalized to make me want to go buy a razor. You know, like there is a way that, you know, that advertisement is beautiful and makes me feel so much. It is not art. Like art is always ambivalent in the sense that it does not allow us a single monolithic response and that's its value. Yeah, I mean, applause break for Garth briefly. Um, You know, yeah, I mean, and this is something that we've, we've come to again and again in our conversations, you know, this idea of, is it art? You know, like, is it, is it art? 
is it, you know, is it art or did you just have a feeling? You know, the sort of, the, <laughs> the difference between something that made you feel something and art, I do think is, is that the sort of multi-form network of feeling that arises from your encounter with it. Like, you know, that you've encountered art when you just like your whole head is on fire and you don't know the name for the thing you are experiencing because it is so complicated and so messy. And, and often I, I find that when I encounter something like, not that Gillette ad, but like that really beautiful commercial about the lesbians in their car and they reunite at the end, that was a commercial that took me on a real journey, but like it, at the end of the day, it was incredibly simple. Like it was, and not in the sort of beautiful simplicity of like a great story, but like the simplicity of a feeling that arises from it. And, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes come to this question of, you know, is that good or are we just hungry for representation to the point where we have lost our capacity to judge art and to engage with art? And where, where has our tolerance for discoursing about art gone when, when it's like, no, you can't be mean to this, this well-meaning TV show because they had a, a queer character on. Like it's, there's a way in which the, the capitalist machinery has insulated itself by giving us such a scarcity of resources <laughs> which to make meaning of what it's offering us. Um, yeah, representation. I mean, don't get me, don't get me on a high horse about that, you know, but, but I do think many of the brilliant things you said, duh, you know, it comes to something that I harp about constantly, which is what D.H. Lawrence calls the preservation of the relation between things being the basis of moral art. Um, and, and art itself true art is moral at its core because it does preserve that true relation between between things and it's that preservation of that relation that does give us such a rich landscape of feeling and sentiment you know i mean it's <laughs> well and i mean and i i mean i agree with that so much and you know and i do think there's such an important meaningful way to think about the relationship between art and morality and i think it has absolutely nothing to do with the way that relationship is talked about by the capital d discourse and you know i mean preserving the relationship between things means making space in art for the problematic making space in art for the repellent making space in art for the forbidden you know, if, again, like, if a work of art is simply sort of shining back at me precepts that I know are my values, then um, I, I just, I don't think that's really doing the work of art. You know, I'm, I'm right now in a deep dive into Philip Roth, you know, one of our beloved problematic ancestresses. I think one of the very great artists of the 20th and early 21st centuries. And, you know, he talks about this all the time, about the need to make space for the repellent and to turn toward the repellent. Well, you know, reading Philip Roth, um, you know, reading his biography, reading his work, reading his essays, Philip Roth, I mean, he was canceled multiple times. And like, had he been writing in this moment, you know, like had Philip Roth, like if Portnoy's complaint came out right now, um, you know, I think it would be utterly 
Like it would be impossible for that book to find any air to breathe in, in this moment. And so like, I feel really fiercely defensive of what I think of as the genuine moral purpose of art, which has absolutely nothing to do with moralism. And I worry that we are in a moment in our kind of critical discourse as a culture that is more moralistic than any moment I've ever lived through. And I worry that that is suffocating of the real work that art can do. Yes, I mean, I'm trying to control all my emotions. I mean, there is something in the the sort of capital D discourse which feels hostile to to discord, which I think is at times productive to meaning making into art. There is something that feels that we are in such a time of like agita that we, there is some sort of fundamental hyper innervated quality to the discourse that makes it not incapable of accommodating discord, but, but we, one must tread carefully if one is bringing discord, if one is disagreeing, if one is cutting against the grain. And I do think that there is a kind of, there is a conflation of D.H. Lawrence's idea of morality and what he was fighting against, right? You know, D.H. Lawrence is writing about more, more moral art at a time when his own work was being sort of called amoral. And it was when we were importing the sort of the operating schema <laughs> of society into art, into the very place where one must be most open to going to dark, uncomfortable places. And it's what happens when you judge that raw, open human place by the rules of a very fallible human society. You know, like it just, it just, uh, it's like a complete mismatch of, of rule and life. Like it just, it does not align. And I do think that we are in a place where that, where those two circumstances seem to be blending more than ever. Like it does seem like there's a real mismatch. Um, I want to like have time to get to our, our wonderful questions. Um, Fargo has asked, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the connections entanglements between queerness and failure. Ooh. Which I think is like a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I don't know if I think about the... I don't know if I think about failure and queerness so much as risk and queerness in some ways, like all the ways in which risk manifests within a queer life and within queer art. I mean, you know, like failure sometimes comes along, but but for me, I've, I've tried to move away from thinking about success failure in terms of queerness and more like, have I heeded some, some, irrevocable call to my, like within myself have I pursued something that has meant something to me have I pursued a line of inquiry without knowing the answer have I gone into the unknown um and and like yes in some ways because of the overculture, we we are judged by metrics that are not of our own making and that have nothing to do with <laughs> what's important to us and and that's certainly something we must attend to but i tried to think very little of what <laughs> what straight people want and think <laughs> what do you think about the entanglements between queerness and failure garth yeah i mean i i think failure is at the heart of art period you know i mean i think like you know to the extent that art is about um seeking the ideal you know art is about embodying an ideal embodying an ideal 
um, an ideal idea, you know, I mean, anytime one never writes the story one envisions, you know, one always writes a kind of, um, you know, I don't know, pale shadow of the story one envisions. So failure is at the heart of art to me. And I, you know, I am a believer in the queer art of failure. Um, but I also very much love what you say about, um, you know, what's really queer is resisting the dichotomy, resisting all dichotomies and breaking them down. And sort of, you know, again, that transvaluation that I think is so important at the heart of queerness, mm. which is, you know, the thing about transvaluation is that it's never stable. It's not that one takes stigma and turns it into style and one's done, like one's gotten over it. Instead, it's that, you know, this pair, this dichotomy, like is in constant motion. And so finding a way, finding an art that can accommodate that, you know, I mean, at the, at the heart of queer art is the question of what to do with bad feelings, I think. And, you know, in some way, acknowledging that these dichotomies are just fundamentally unstable and that we really, you know, this inst instability makes it impossible to sort of say, to, to make meaningful use of ideas of, of failure and success. Like that seems true to me. Yeah, I mean, it's a real dipole induced dipole moment. Like it's, there, there are these sort of weak electrostatic attractive forces that hold the universe together and they're not stable sort of electrostatic charges. It, there are these momentary polarized spaces that are caused by the introduction of some phenomena, right? And so I, I also agree that the two poles are never stable. They're constantly, there's a ballet of, of electricity in, in the universe. And that's how I think of these sort of constantly shifting ideas. We have a real juicy one, Garth. Okay. Super juicy one. Thinking about cancel culture, what's the difference between rejecting slash canceling problematic works versus actively trying to shift slash change the canon? How do we distinguish between those two moves? What does that work look like? So, um, okay, I have lots of thoughts about these, about this, but no certainties. So, you know, whenever I try to think about questions like this, um, I feel the sort of poverty of my own apparatus for thinking. Um, I will say, um, I, and, and I think everyone comes to their understanding of this individually and nothing, I would never want to give anyone precepts, especially in art. I mean, to me, the cardinal rule of being an artist in the world is that I don't get to tell anyone what kind of art they should make. Like nobody gets to tell me what kind of art I should make and I don't get to tell anybody else what kind of art they should make. Mm. I think there should be an extraordinarily high bar for quote unquote cancellation, especially in realms of art um, that I think, you know, I always get very nervous um, when we start talking about representations, artistic aesthetic representations as quote unquote violence. And I want to like make clear you know, so um, coming from Kentucky, growing up in the pre-internet South, um, I felt how damaging it was to only have available representations of my life that were not made by queer people. And, you know, the fact that when I was growing up, the only ways in which my life was ever represented, like the only possibilities for my life were that gay men could be child molesters and gay men could die of AIDS. 
Like, I understand how damaging that is. So I want to acknowledge that. At the same time, when we start talking about um, representation as violence, that seems to me a really dangerous course because I just don't know how one says this art is an act of violence without following that with consequences that I don't think any of us want. Like this art should be destroyed, this art should be prohibited, this artist should be in jail. I just don't know how one insulates the claim from the consequence. Mm. Also, you know, so central to my life since I was like 14 years old have been activism and art making. Like I cannot imagine myself as a human being in the world without either of those things. I would never argue that art is insulated from politics, that art is insulated from ideology, that art is insulated from history. Obviously it's not, it's situated in all of those things. But art making and activism, and again, I'm speaking individually for me, feel like very importantly distinct endeavors and very importantly distinct in their relationship to the will and therefore in their relationship to responsibility. So as an activist, working in a political realm, I need to speak with a kind of certainty and instrumentality and to be responsible to my actions in a way that is all answerable to the will. So I have an aim and I want to affect the world in a certain way to make change happen. Art isn't made that way in my experience. Art is not answerable to the will. You know, when I am making art, I am responding to urges that as I experience them precede the will and therefore cannot be answerable in the same ways to the claims of responsibility. And it feels to me really important if we acknowledge the complexity of what it is to be a human being and just the muck of the human, and if we acknowledge that, there, that so much of ourselves is mysterious to us, it seems to me really important that we can say, I am putting a frame around this space. And within this space, I am giving license to elements of myself that I would be frightened to give license to in the actual world. And to say that the consequences of my making within this space, within this frame, do not have the same relationship to the real world as the consequences of my actions out on the street. Mm. Like that just feels so important to me to acknowledging the complexity of the human and also to avoiding a kind of repressive moralism. You know, we need a place where we can express the abyss of the human. And, you know, art is that place, but only if we preserve the moral meaning of a frame and acknowledge that art does not affect reality in an easy, unnuanced way. Yeah. So that's, I would say that. 
I mean, you just give a whole sermon about that. Honestly, would buy that essay. I mean, I, I, I think I agree with so much of all of what you've said on that score. And, and I guess um, my angle on it is when you call something problematic, my first impulse is to be like, yeah, so what? Like so many things are pop, like that is the nature of life. Did it, did it like break into your house? Did it like harm you? And like my, my attitude about problematic art or art which feels flawed or, or messy in some way is to respond in art. Like I try to meet, I try to meet messy, complicated art with messy, complicated art. I try to sort of interrogate my response to something, the set of questions it raises in me. And I try to meet that with art that answers back to it in some way. And like, yes, that certainly seems to me to sort of come from um, a place of like socioeconomic stability in my life right now. Like I, I feel that I have the, the room and space to do that. And I do want to also acknowledge that, that these questions the question of like the problematic representation does begin to feel more urgent when you you the the sort of overculture has turned the fire hose of representation on is like blasting your face with negative <laughs> and sort of with bad art essentially like with the proliferation of bad art these questions of problematic do begin to feel more urgent because you look around the gallery walls and it's just all really bad two dollar Walmart portraits you know but I think and you've helped me so much on this score. What you have reminded me again and again when I'm feeling like, Garth, this is so bad, is you remind me that like, the world is bigger than these four walls. Like the world is bigger than this movie or like this bad novel or like this irritating caricature of a black person and a story. You ask me why it is I've, I've limited my, my sort of field of view to this one tiny thing. And, and that's always been, something I'm grateful for is all the times you've reminded me like, oh, there is a world outside and I actually don't have to engage <laughs> with this bad art. Like I don't actually have to engage with it. And where I can meet the bad art is in my own art. I can answer it and do it want to sort of write into the world that which I feel is missing feels like an important part of that conversation. And so to the question of how we, we frame this idea of reframing the canon or, or whatever it's like well like why do we need a can like everyone has their own like make your own and like you don't need anyone to tell you who or what you are <laughs> like it doesn't absolutely no i mean this is why like i hate the idea of canons but i love the idea of traditions because a tradition is just a conversation between artists across time and everybody makes one's own and yeah i mean you know i do think so you know it's not that I don't think no one should be canceled. You know, I mean, I do think like yeah. there are conversations we don't need to have anymore. Like, I don't need somebody to sit around and say, but maybe slavery is like, has positive effects on the culture. Like, we don't need that conversation. Like that conversation we can shut down. But I think, you know, and I actually like in my undergraduate education reading Plato, we had that conversation, you know, but like, we don't need to have that conversation anymore. Like that's, but that the bar should be very high for those conversations that we say we shut down and that there should be a kind of generous democratic spirit in mm. that. And I do think you know, there is no democracy without conversation. And so just the idea that like, you know, that line, 
where we say conversation closed should be quite high and that we should be, um, I mean, I think uh, it's all very complicated, but I would say like my default position is, as you say, production of discourse, not shutting down discourse. Mm. That the response to bad art is better art. Yeah, I mean, I that that's the way I've always felt in some ways. It's like, oh, that was a really bad novel. I'm going to do write a different story. You know, someone recently asked me, they were like, Brandon, there was a, they were we were talking about a really shitty like gay show that had come out and they were like, I can't believe this show and they were going on and on about it and they were like, well, like Brandon, like how do you like why don't you write a piece of criticism about this? And I was just like, well, like my response to bad representation of gay people is just to write stories with gay people in them. Like I just write my own, like I actually don't need this. It's amazing that when I became more productive as an artist, the energy that I was willing to dedicate to the question of whether or not that show did justice to gay people, like it just, it just like went away. <laughs> like I just had no more patience for it because I was too busy making art to care much. And it's also about sort of being honest about our targets. like. Yes. I mean, I think one reason why sort of there is this sense that we are positioning ourselves in relation to fragility as opposed to strength, um, I mean, is because, you know, really, I think like this YA novel that you think is problematic in some respect and so you want it to be canceled, that is actually not the source of danger, fear, pain that the source is elsewhere and to sort of not feel that one has discharged one's responsibilities as a citizen in you know um going on twitter and attacking a ya author or whoever um when really we need to be mobilizing for november and we need to get trump out of office you know but this sense that we do feel so vulnerable and powerless at this moment. And we are, I mean, I think we are historically at a moment of greater risk than any moment I've ever lived through. Mm -hmm. And so I understand that. But then again, it's a question of how can I best use my energy? And maybe it's not going after this target that feels accessible to me that I can exert some power over, but instead acknowledging the scale and difficulty of the task, which we're not gonna solve by writing sonnets or stories. Like we need to be in the street. We need to be mobilizing. You know, we need to not confuse art making with the responsibilities or, or criticism or response to art making with the responsibilities of citizenship. Yeah, Garth, you're right. <laughs> Which is something that I find myself often saying when we meet. Hey. Uh, but yeah, register to vote. Get your absentee ballot right now. Register to vote. Yeah. Or if you don't want to vote, that's okay too. I'm sure you have a good reason. Well, you know, there are reasons. It's yes, a- but we should talk. We should yeah. talk about, let's just have a talk. I'm not going to judge. I just want to talk to you about your reasons for not voting. That's this is corrupt. Okay. Um, so I think we're actually out of time. No, Brandon. No. Thank you so much, Garth, for talking to me. Uh, It's such a privilege to get to chat with you. You're the genius. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Risa, for doing the the work. Thank you, Lance, for having us.
Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength homes of Brandon Taylor and Garth Greenwell and the makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's conversation, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to learn about the various benefits of becoming a listener supporter from joining conversations that shape the future of the show to bonus audio from past guests, including Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, Carmen Maria Machado, N.K. Jemison, Nikki Finney, and Laylee Long Soldier, to becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving books months before the general public. All of this and more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make this show run so smoothly. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Ishwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.